Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Diana Winston. Diana is Director of Mindfulness Education at the Semmel Institute's Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. She's the author of The Little Book of Being and the co-author of Fully Present, The Science, Art, and Practice of Mindfulness. She's taught mindfulness for health and well-being since 1999 in a range of settings, including healthcare, universities, businesses, nonprofits, and schools in the U.S. and internationally. She created the Evidence-Based Mindful Awareness Practices Program as the founding director of UCLA's Training in Mindfulness Facilitation and as a founding board member of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. She's a member of the Teachers Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and has been meditating since 1989, including a year as a Buddhist nun. Welcome to the Metta Hour, Diana. Thank you, Sharon. Okay, you've been meditating since 1989, which logically that's the year we met, right? I think we met in 1990. Okay. Yeah, I started first in Asia. Yeah. Oh, you started in Asia. So how old were you when we met? 21, okay. I think. You were young. <laughs> I was young, yes. Um, and you're extremely accomplished. It's fun to read all those <laughs> boards and things Thank you started you. and wrote and, and all of that, including your I'm brand new book. Yeah, I've been busy, I guess, <laughs> in the last many years. So uh, before we dive into things like your book, tell me how you first encountered meditation. If you started in Asia, um, that implies a kind of strong motivation. Yeah, I was, um, well, it's interesting. I was an exchange student in Thailand when I was in college and did not get into meditation, kind of like played on the edges of it and then went back right after I graduated. And um, and I was in, I had a friend who was very involved with Tibetan activist work and she said, you have to go to Dharamsala. So showed up in Dharamsala and also got involved in that kind of work. And then there were all these teachings, of course, going on, right? And so I started listening, but I was a little skeptical. I was an activist. What is this stuff? I remember I used to sit in the back of the room and listen to teachings and like unwrap these giant bars of chocolate mm. really loudly and rudely. Um, but then something like clicked inside me. And then I did my first uh, meditation retreat there and then went down to Thailand and got exposed to to uh, Vipassana meditation at Suen Mok Center in Thailand. And while I was there, this is what was interesting. So there was a nun there who said to me, did you like this 10-day retreat? And I, I, like maybe wasn't the right <laughs> word, but it was, I survived it. And I, But I did. And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, there's this place in Massachusetts that has a three-month retreat. You should do oh, that. Funny. <laughs> yeah, right? They were advertising for IMS in Thailand. And um, and I kind of at that moment went, no way. I'm never going to sit three months. But um, But I signed up for it and did it that following year. Wow. When you were an exchange student in Thailand, was did you choose Thailand uh, 
for any particular reason, or did it just happen that way? Uh, it was interesting. I chose, I actually originally chose Indonesia because at the time I was very interested in theater and I wanted to study Balinese theater. And that year they canceled the program because of elections in the country. Mm. And so they said, you have a couple of choices. You can go to Brazil, you can go to Thailand. I thought, all right, I want to stay in Asia. I went to Thailand. So it really wasn't so premeditated. Mm. Isn't it that way <laughs> so often? <laughs> exactly. It's very interesting. Yeah. So the word Vipassana, for anybody who is not that familiar with it, means insight. So the whole class of insight meditation practices are really Vipassana. The The term, which is a Pali word, the language of the original Buddhist text, these days tends to be associated with one particular school of insight meditation founded by S.N. Goenka or, or popularized by S.N. Goenka. Uh, but it's a broader term than that. It, it means insight. And the engine for insight, classically, is mindfulness, a particular quality of mind that we cultivate that leads not necessarily to just sort of soporific, peaceful states or um, being in a daze or, you know, anything we might associate with, with meditation uh, positive or negative, it, its purpose, the purpose of mindfulness is insight or understanding our lives in a different way. So I, I see the word mindfulness in many of the things you have founded and co-founded. Yeah, I um, I mean, it's sort of been the direction of the last 15 years. I mean, I after doing a lot of practice, both, you know, with you guys and in, uh, in Barry, and then also in Asia, then I was trained to teach with Jack Cornfield of Spirit Rock, and I taught in a Buddhist context for a number of years, but I, there was a certain point where I kind of thought, I'm loving doing that work, but I also feel like these teachings could be applicable to so many people without having a particular religious mm -hmm. context around it. And that was when I started, you know, figuring out what was next and made contact with UCLA, so, which led me to doing all this mindfulness work in the last 15 mm -hmm. years. Uh, I often think and say, as I look out on the landscape of growing um, propulsive interest in mindfulness, that people are using the term in different ways. And But even classically, traditionally, it can mean different things, yet all of them are purposed toward insight, toward understanding our lives. So I know in your book, um, The Little Book of Being, which came out in March of 2019, you lay out a spectrum of different awareness practices ranging from focus to flexible to natural awareness practice. And I wonder if you can talk about the spectrum of those practices. Sure. Um, it seems to me as I've watched the mindfulness movement evolve that the main way mindfulness is getting, has been popularized is pay attention to your breathing. When your attention wanders, bring it back. And, um, this is, you know, a very powerful and important practice, obviously, and it is not the full picture. And so I was interested in how to think about the different ways in which we can practice mindfulness that are what I started to see is along the spectrum, that there is this focused awareness at one end where um, our mind tends to just stay with a particular meditation object like our breath. And that our awareness at times can get flexible, and then our awareness can open into these other, this other area of a more broad, panoramic, expansive kind of 
awareness and also awareness of awareness itself, which is taught a lot less frequently. And so the book is really to fill out that area, but also to contextualize it in light of the different ways that I'm perceiving that we can be aware. And so just to say really simply, like, we can have, if you think of a camera, we can have a telephoto lens and take a photo that's very, very narrow. We can take a camera, a photo that looks pretty just ordinary, like just the person in front of you, or we can take a panoramic lens photo, which is quite broad and expansive. And awareness tends to work in that same way in my experience. So in some schools and some approaches, it's it's really a progression, just the way you laid it out. You start with practicing a more focused particular awareness, most especially something like the breath. Um, and then after some time, you broaden your awareness or your focus, you could even say, to a more flexible or movable awareness. Maybe you're with the breath until something else becomes predominant, a sensation in your body or an emotion or thought process or something like that. And then when that develops to a certain extent, you move on to awareness of awareness or more natural awareness that doesn't feel uh, effortful in any way. You've, you've cultivated um, momentum, one would often say, um, and and therefore you're just there. On the other hand, there are approaches that say, okay, we're going to start with natural awareness because this is a capacity we all have, and let's apply that in very particular, precise ways or or in broader ways. Um, so I'm wondering about your experience of that kind of progression. Um, yeah. So, so are you are you asking personally or um, yeah? What, what do you I think? think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> um, I think that both are true. And when I laid out the spectrum, I was really clear to say I don't believe there's a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think you have to start focused and then you moved and ultimately you get to this really special, amazing, higher awareness with natural awareness. Because my experience in working with students, and you can tell me if this is yours as well, but it's like like people often move in and out of all mm -hmm. of these types of awareness. And so I think it's just helpful for people to know, like, here's a map of the territory. You may be here. You may be here. One great way is to progress along. There's another whole way of of start with that as your view from the very beginning. And they're both equally valid, um, always of perceiving it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. And it's, I think part of um, the issue is that it has assumed the or of a hierarchy, you know. And, and so if you're... Uh, maybe particularly scattered, or you're getting a lot of benefit out of a more precise awareness, or you return to that after some time of a broader awareness, you tend to feel bad, you know, <laughs> like, like I'm doing this elementary practice again, or now it's, you know, remedial practice. But uh, I often, I mean, I've been practicing for, it's getting on, you know, like I started in January of 1971. So uh, it was a lot of years. And Sometimes I just sit and I'm focused on my breath and it feels so good, you know? And I think, I totally oh, that's agree. good. You know, I don't, I don't need anything fancier than that. That's right. I feel the same way. And I, I love the flexibility of knowing there are different ways, different types of meditative approaches that are needed at different times, even on different days, in different periods of our practice. And to have that whole kind of 
that flexibility and the breadth to experience and to learn to kind of listen to yourself and see what is needed at what time. So let's go deeper into the term you use in the book, Little Book of Being, which came out in March of 2019, so very recently, um, Natural Awareness. I have a quote from the book, which is, uh, natural awareness is like a radio station that is always blasting and is always available to us. However, much of the time we're tuned to a different station. We tend to tune to station anxiety, station catastrophizing, KPF judgment, or WNC anger. So even though natural awareness is part of being human, we need to practice tuning into it in order for it to become the radio station we listen to most often. So how do we tune into it? How do we discover it? One of the things that I've seen as I've taught is that people have had experiences where they've touched into natural awareness in their lifetime. And oftentimes things happen when people when people are children or they have memories. If I ask people to recall a time where they felt at home, at peace, connected, in a state of like of just deep well-being, and this is sort of where I'm pointing to with natural awareness. Now I can get more technical. Um, people have people have a story. You know, I have a story I tell in the book of being about 14 years old and lying in this field and looking up at the sky, and suddenly this sense of uh, just deep love and connection came over me. And then, you know, so confusing, like what? Where is that from? But but it just amazing. And I hear story after story, and they don't have to be dramatic stories. There can be really simple experiences. I was walking my dog and this profound sense of connection arose. So, um, so I, that's why I say this is like a, this is always here for us. It's, it's a part of what it means to be human, but we're tuned out of it. And so these natural awareness practices can help us to access this state of being and um and and it's connected so so that's kind of like the approach for everyone is one of one of the practices i offer is just to reflect on that time if you've had an experience or an experience similar to that and then to notice what it feels like in your body and let that experience really be here um and to me it's very connected to the this this other end of practices where we're learning techniques and tools to access it um, through meditative approach. That's great. You know, in, in uh, some schools of Tibetan Buddhism, um, they have a definition or translation of the word that we translate as meditation. Um, in Theravadan schools, in, in Southern Buddhist schools, the word is bhavana, and the translation is actually cultivation. We're cultivating certain qualities. But in certain Tibetan Buddhist schools, the translation, when we say meditation, they say getting used to it or getting familiar with it. So that, of course, brings up the question, well, what's it? And it's exactly as you described. You know, they have a belief that as human beings just living a life, we have had experiences of tremendous connection or openness or clarity or all the above, but we don't tend to be awfully used to it. We don't tend to live there or abide there. And so the they see meditation practices not kind of reaching for something foreign or far away, but learning to make a home in the deepest places we have already experienced 
And so there's a very different feeling tone to it. I love that. I love that um, definition. That's great. I hadn't heard that before. So let's talk about formal practice a little bit because that fits in. Um, however one is practicing, it seems to me that, in my experience at any rate, there's a real need for formal practice that I feel like I can say, yeah, it's possible to be mindful whatever you're doing, and it is. Um, mm -hmm. But very often that remains theoretical. And that for me, if I have some period of formal practice every day, that I'm much more likely, say, when the phone rings, not to pick it up right away, but let it ring three times and breathe as Thich Nhat Hanh would advise, or, or washing dishes, uh, actually not think, I, I'm going to hurry, I better get through this quick, uh, but actually pay attention to what I'm feeling. Um, and in today's culture, where mindfulness has become so popular, there's also an emphasis on what's the quickest way, what's the fastest way, you know, how can I do the least and get the most result? And um very curious about what you feel about formal practice. Well, I'm, I've been well trained yes. by you. <laughs> I, was thinking, I just set that up so you can't really say anything else. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you know, formal practice to me is the key to exactly what you're saying to being able to live it in your life and and it's also i mean it's just so needed in and of itself um so i for a lot of my book is a description of formal practice and including descriptions of of not about natural awareness but about the the focus awareness practice and how we do that and how we can practice with a more flexible or what i'm now calling investigative awareness um as a kind of uh, along the spectrum before even doing natural awareness practices um, and that we can practice with natural awareness, that it's not just something like, oh, every now and then we might have like this deep, great moment, but that we can, we can deliberately kind of, uh, what was I going to say, like sort of like plowing the field so that these experiences can arise and that we can access more awareness of awareness. Um, so absolutely, formal practice is key to, to well, many things. And you have recommendations um, for different ways to bring in greater awareness, like washing dishes. So in addition to maybe formal sitting and walking, it seems that there are activities. It's almost playful, right? We can, we can commit mm -hmm. to certain activities being a mindfulness exercise, and it's kind of fun. That's right. I mean, I, I, in my book, I do a lot of take mindfulness into this area of your life, this area, like driving. Like, what if you were to bring, well, so I'm, so I'm. You well, are in LA. I'm going to have to say. <laughs> I'm in LA, right. That is the greatest guru in LA is the freeway. Um, we, we can practice. I mean, so those different types of awareness that we were describing in the spectrum from the narrow to the more broad and expansive, you can practice within daily life. So you can be washing the dishes and just feeling, uh, feeling your hands on the, on the dish or feeling your feet on the ground or taking a breath, or you can have, so that's one way to do it. Fantastic way to practice in the midst of daily life. You could also be washing the dishes with a more expansive 
awareness. So taking in, I know in my house, for instance, so I have a nine-year-old, a dog, grandma. I mean, I have so much going on. And so washing the dishes, it's not a quiet, focused opportunity for me. It's an opportunity to be sort of spaciously aware of all that's arising, but I am practicing in the midst of that daily life experience. So that's why I say do it driving, do it when you're taking a walk in the neighborhood, do it when you're with your dog. Um, my do- I have a new mm-hmm. dog, so it's mostly what I talk about these days. But um, but it's it's there's there's an always an opportunity to be present, but it doesn't have to be. I think what I'm pointing to is oftentimes a lot of the the instruction for being present in daily life is just feel your breath or come back to your feet. Um, but we can also ha- come back to just settling back into a sense of being just being here right now. So it's it's much less specific, but equally valuable. One of the things that's fascinating about that state of settling back into one's being is that um, there's a kind of loving energy to it and without a formal loving kindness declaration. I feel that way, absolutely. It's a very loving awareness, and I'm often... When I'm practicing in that way, there's just a sense of like rightness and goodness inside me. It doesn't mean that like difficult psychological material might not arise because it can, but it's almost like that space is so warm and welcoming that it it's like, all right, come on up, let's see what mm-hmm. we have here. <laughs> you know. So in your book, you recommend finding two teachers. Can you explain that? Mm-hmm. Um. So the first teacher is an external teacher, someone who you respond to, who can give you instruction on how to meditate. Now, I know these days it's it's not always easy to do if you're um, living in different areas, but of course I recommend things like going on meditation retreats and um, classes if they're available. And there are online, good, great online solutions as well for people who don't have access to teacher but that's num- that's one type of teacher and then the second type of teacher is is where we learn to become our own best teacher and that is not an immediate teacher that arises but it's something that we can cultivate over time because ultimately we it, like it's an amazing skill to be able to learn to trust ourselves and listen deeply to what is needed and, you know, to be careful of deluding ourselves, okay, I've, I, you know, we meditate for one minute and my inner teacher says, good, that was enough. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, we don't listen. We have to be, use our common sense. But to really trust, um, I think over time, a maturation of our practice is really this development of an inner teacher. Do, do you know how many people have gone through the UCLA uh, MARC training and mindfulness facilitation program? Um, so we've had, at the end of the year, I think we'll have had 350 people graduate, and they're people from all around the world, and they're people who, they come to train to learn how to bring it back into their communities that where they're, whom they're serving. So a lot of them are um, already embedded in organizations where they're teaching mindfulness. Some of them are coaches, or they have, they're, they're just calling themselves a mindfulness teacher and teaching in various contexts, but many of them are already in schools, in hospitals, um, in businesses, and, you know, the whole range of where people teach. Um, So 
One of the people who've gone through our program is a pilot, and he's brought mindfulness into um, into that whole field in a pretty interesting way. Mindful aviator is what he calls it. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. The statistics are horrible for them all falling asleep and so forth and not being mindful. Um, we've, we have a woman who um, works on a uh, an American Indian reservation and teaches mindfulness there and she comes out of that community. We have people who are teaching mindfulness in Japan and China and in um, we have someone in Ireland. We have people uh, who are doing it in Australia. We have people who are bringing it, a lot of people bringing it to communities that um, wouldn't necessarily have access Um Someone started a whole youth program that bringing it throughout the San Francisco Bay Area to underserved youth in juvenile halls. I mean, there's so many really interesting things that people are doing through having trained with us. Uh, I find that, you know, all these stories so moving. And, um, of course, when I came back from India in 1974, and it was was kind of unimaginable that mindfulness and these practices— would extend in, in so many different places and uh, there would be such a variety of people interested in it. I feel the same way. I mean, I haven't been doing it as long as you have, but I will say that it's shocking to me. I mean, when I first started in the late 80s, I felt like I had to keep it so under wraps and I couldn't tell anybody mm-hmm. about what I was doing, you know, and I, I remember, <laughs> it's a funny story, but... um. I don't know if I, it's an interesting question, but I'm not sure I identify so much as a Buddhist these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, kind of, I mean, I do, and I, and but I teach so secularly. But in any case, when I first got into it, after I did my first three-month retreat, um, I met with my best friend at the time, and um, we sat, she had spent the year work, uh, in a theater program, and I had spent the year, I guess, in Asia at that point. And so we sat, I remember sitting in the park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and I said, I have something to tell you. And she said, what is it? And I said, I think I'm a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. I remember being like so worried about saying that. She said, oh, my God, what does that mean? And I said, well, I just spent the year really going deeply inside myself and learning to see myself clearly and letting go of the places where I was holding on and um, opening up my sense of self. And and she said, I've been doing the exact same thing in acting school. (laughs) So it was a really um, great moment for me and like seeing, I mean, sort of off topic, but it's just in seeing that how we can relate to people who even if they don't exactly have the same practices that we do. But um, but my marker for all of this is is that was 30 years ago or whatever. And then a few years ago, she, she my best friend never got into meditation. Um, I adore her. She's my favorite person mm-hmm. in the world, doesn't meditate. But when I was visiting with her family and um, they all said, Diana, will you teach us meditation? Including her like 15-year-old daughter. So I was like, oh my God, it's come a long way. They used to make fun of me and think I was strange. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also an interesting time. Well, even, um, you know, people often ask me how I feel about secular mindfulness. And 
I go back to the first night of my first retreat, which was January 7th, 1971, in Bodh Gaya, India. Bodh Gaya being the town that has grown up around the descendant of the tree they say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. It was a 10-day course uh, led by S.N. Goenka. That's how I began meditating. It was in the context mm, of this wow. intensive 10-day retreat. And the first night, uh, Goenka, she said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is in no way about becoming a Buddhist or uh, some people not being welcome because of their beliefs or their faith tradition. Um, this is for anybody who wants to pursue it. And that was my very beginning. And so that formed the foundation of my understanding and my whole perspective. And so in some ways, mindfulness has always been secular in my mind. And I find it a return to that kind of original spirit where the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life, and it doesn't really matter how one presents it in terms of language. You know, I think um, there are ways in which I think one can really look critically at, at whether sort of a technique of mental training is being taken out of a larger context of how one lives one li one's life. But... Um, the fact that it's expressed differently, I don't, I don't, I don't care. You know, I don't mind. <laughs> well, I, I feel very similar, similarly, and that you know the quote that he said also speak in the idiom of the people, mm -hmm. right? That one to me also is that same kind of understanding, like speak in a way that people are going to hear it. That was the Buddha, by the way, not Goenka. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. Um. So I think that there's a lot of and and then if you look at, like if you look historically at the way um Buddhist teachings have been brought to lay people and to women and to like like in a lot of the cultures you see that movement in the way that in um in Burmese Buddhism when they brought it mm -hmm. more into the lay public like it's it's there's always been a movement of mm -hmm. it yeah yeah, there is that beautiful story. They say that when the Buddha had, I think, 60 enlightened disciples, he sent them out into the world to to offer the teachings. And, uh, you know, he, he said, um, go forth for the good of the many, for the benefit of the many, and so on. And then the last thing he said was um, teach in the local idiom. And, and so here we are, you know, and like it's a challenge right. to... Uh, in effect, be a translator, and yet, and yet, stay very in touch with what seems to be the integrity of a whole process and a whole way of looking, and and yet, it's imperative that that we do that. Right, and I think that we run into the distortions that happen that are inevitable, mm -hmm. because that's what happens in when things get out on a larger cultural level, and. Um, I mean, I I was recently interviewed by someone asking about can I can I can I give my opinion on the mindfulness Instagram influencers? <laughs> and I was like, what is that? I didn't even know. And I didn't know either until this moment. <laughs> yes, there are a number of people who are like have millions of followers, um, and they put little quotes about mindfulness. But it's also like there's all this. I don't know who they are. I'm not sure anything. I don't know anything about their. I don't background. think I'm one. So. <laughs> you might be, <laughs> but these are the people that say things like, I just ate overnight oats with chia seeds and I had such a mindful breakfast, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like this odd distortion mm -hmm. of, of it. And, um, 
And I, you know, once I, there was an article that I was um, that I saw that said mindfulness is um, excellent for reducing depression and belly mm. fat. And and so and then there's another one I have actually. This is a slide. It's um, it says make a killing on Wall Street using mindfulness, <laughs> and, and it's just I mean this is inevitable in the culture. It's yeah. it's ridiculous, and and I hope that's not what most people assume mindfulness is, but it's certainly happening. Well, I want to sure. start a movement. Let's make Diana Winston a mindfulness Instagram influencer. <laughs> So you need I'm like a million followers, Instagram. right? You're not on Instagram. Well, that's not going to work. <laughs> I'll start. I'll get on. I'll uh, okay. start with one person. You. You can follow me. Okay. <laughs> that's very funny. So uh, tell me about the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. In um, the light well, of Make a Killing on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is very... Um, like like I like I spend a lot of time looking at the larger mindfulness field and thinking about the way that it's evolving and I think I'm sort of answering part mm-hmm. of your question then I'll go back to it but I think I mean I think that there's been so much um this is I mean this is a question I have for you Sharon yeah. do you know any other field where somebody studies it for a a, a week mm-hmm. or a day, and then decides they want to. They decide they want to teach it. Like if I go, if I go in and I and I um, learn tennis for in a week and workshop, I don't then say I'm a tennis teacher. Mm-hmm. But there's so the question really isn't. It's not really. Do you know other other fields? It's more like why do you think so many people want to be mindfulness teachers? And this is then I'll kind of answer your question. But what do you think? Uh, you know, I've never really thought about it in that way. I've just observed the phenomenon. But, um, uh, I mean, it's probably a very wide variety of motivations. You know, in some cases, um, even that week, even that glimpse was very helpful. And people think, wow, you know, I can really share this. And, and this is kind of an incredible thing. So that's, you know, uh, the best case scenario probably. Um, and then there's, I mean, there are ways in which, you know, one could be very reductionistic and not really understand it and, and think this is a snap, you know, <laughs> like right, I got this right. down and, um, and, you know, not recognizing there was a huge body of knowledge and, um, and I, th- I think that is true, you know, because it's, um, in, in so many ways, the experience is private. It's within ourselves. And it's through changed behavior that others recognize. You don't really get, um, you know, uh, like you can't graduate with honors compared to somebody else, you know. or <laughs> it, It's not like you get certificates all along the way saying, I achieved this, I achieved that. You know, it's because you're a kinder person or you're more patient with your kids or um you listen to strangers more kind of completely instead of just being distracted in your head by thinking about your email. You know, it's really changed behavior. That's the external mark, but the um, it, it's such an internal process that we, we might think, well, there is no standard or, or there's no, um, you know, there's no difference between one person's experience and another's or my experience now and, and my experience when I started. And, and that's not actually true. 
Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I, I hadn't thought of the third thing you said, but I definitely agree. I mean, for me, I've watched, I've watched as the field has grown the amount of people that want to teach it. And I think it is a lot what you're saying. Like, it was so amazing for them that they want to mm-hmm. share it, you know. Um, and then they don't recognize the depth of what transformation is, and they don't realize what you need to teach it. Like, you, I mean, you don't have to live through history to teach history, but you do have to <laughs> embody mm-hmm. your practice mm-hmm. to teach it. So, yeah, anyway, I was curious what you thought. But, um, yeah, it's a very fascinating but, question to look at it from that angle. Um, right? It's, it's, well, I keep reading it's like a billion-dollar industry, and I think, where? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. <laughs> Maybe it's the Instagram influencers, you know. Like. It's, it's, that's it. It's the apps, uh-huh. right? It's the yeah. Um, although I will say, a little plug: UCLA has a free app <laughs> now. <laughs> it's just called UCLA Mindful, um, and we're not going to monetize it. Well, but, I will um, I'll also plug the apps that are monetized <laughs> since I'm on many of them. Um, just because um, it's you know it's like Western reality. Um, right, exactly. It's exactly. the culture that we're in. So essentially, we have all these people who want to be teachers. There hasn't been any regulation around who gets to be a teacher, and you can take a weekend workshop and just say, "I'm I'm a mindfulness teacher," and put out a shingle. And if you're a good marketer, you might start getting clients and students. And and that's very problematic because, as we know, it's an embodied practice that takes years and years of of um, practice and work and investigation to have any depth in it. So so that out of that reason the International Mindfulness Teachers Association was born and the idea behind it is to accredit teacher training programs. When we started we started accrediting teacher training programs based on um teacher training programs having a set of competencies that we kind of came to based on what we saw seemed to be a standard in the field of 200 hours. And um, when people go through those accredited training programs, they can then get a certification. So they can become a certified mindfulness teacher-professional level, which is a 200-hour level, and then um, can can use that that professionally and to show that you've had a certain amount of training because we won't accredit a teacher training program unless it's... Um, you know, it's rigorous and it has a certain level of uh, prerequisites and mechanisms for watching people teach and giving feedback and stuff. I don't know if I'm getting too technical here, by the way. Um, but so it, so it's intended to accredit teacher training programs, credential individuals, and then it's also a membership organization with the hopes of building community around it, around being a mindfulness teacher. And down the road, um, it'll be a site for continuing education units and not not offering itself, but pointing people so that the field becomes a field just like any other professional field like therapy or massage or acupuncture so that it's it's credentialed. So that's the vision of the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. And we're in the really early phases of it. It's only been around for a year but already at, at this point, we have 400 members, about 200 credentialed individuals, and I believe um, uh, 10 accredited programs. Yeah, it's such an interesting time, isn't it? It's like uh, it's almost like a revolutionary time. And um, I think another reason um, that 
there's a kind of rush almost to become a teacher is that within the the worldview of the teachings, there's a certain emphasis on equality and one's innate potential and innate dignity. And um, to hold that view very strongly and at the same time understand that, yeah, but I can't do surgery, you know, no. like because I haven't, haven't trained. And so okay. um, it, it doesn't attack in any way, you know, one's incredible potential and capacity or, or negate one's experience, you know, um, of connection or, or love or wisdom. But it, it's actually a skill. And that is, I think it's helpful to keep both of those in mind. That's right. That's right. And for someone who's new, they're not going to understand that at all. And it's important that they get some training in, I mean, to learn and to, to be good at doing anything, having training is helpful. Yeah. So um, so that's like the spirit in which um, this this has grown out of. It's fabulous. You sound busy. I'm way too busy, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I have a kid. Yeah. And, and a dog. Family life. And a dog, and a yeah. new book. <laughs> a new book, yeah. <laughs> That's terrific. Well, thank you for all your work and uh, everything that you're doing um, and continue to do and innovate and create. So I'm uh, hoping that to close our conversation, you can lead us in a short guided meditation practice. Absolutely. And um, you know that I'm just so grateful to you for, like, just all the influence that you've had both on me personally and on the field of mindfulness. I think you're, it's so important to have your voice out there. So I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you. Um, so we'll do, I guess we'll do a little bit of a natural awareness practice. And when I talk about natural awareness practice, we're just, I'm just going to give, I, I have in my book, these glimpse practices that are short practices that anybody can do either in their meditation or at any time of the day to help access natural awareness, which is this more expansive, effortless, objectless uh, state of being. So I'm going to, I'll do, I'll put a few glimpse practices together in this meditation. Um, so I just invite wherever you are to settle back in a way that's comfortable, taking a breath or two. Just feeling the connection to your breathing. And let's begin by turning our attention to the sounds around us. And start listening to the sounds. And as you listen, listen as far out as you can possibly listen. What's the furthest away sound you can hear? And now notice your body seated or wherever you are. 
See if you can notice the back of your body. Just feel the back of your body. We're always so forward-facing. Can you sense the back of your body? Can you sense the back of your body? And as you do that, soften, relax a little bit if that's possible, and begin to notice your body seated here. See if you can feel the space around your body. And it's kind of a thought experiment, like what is around my body? Can I imagine my body expanding out 360 degrees above and below? And let that expansion happen. Just let it expand out. And now add the hearing in. So can you feel expanded? And listen. And then if you want to try even more, you can open your eyes if you're comfortable doing this. And just let yourself take in whatever is in front of you. But now see if you can look from the periphery. Soften. If you're in a room with many objects, can you notice the space between the objects? Soft eyes. And let's put it together. Seeing, expanded feeling, and listening. Relax and be. Letting it all come and go like a great vast open sky. Everything is passing by like clouds, wide open spacious, nothing to do, just resting, no agenda, and then ask yourself this question, what would be here right now if nothing was wrong? You had no problem to solve. Notice and take in what happens. And now let's come back to seated here, sensing your body, expanded or more internal, taking a breath or two, and whenever you're ready, we'll end the meditation.
Thank you so much for that. I'm going to try to practice that throughout the day. It's beautiful. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's fun to expand. Like we're we're so used to, you know, noticing things in very kind of closed down ways. It just it, these practices they break your habits, mm-hmm. right? They that's the that's kind of the purpose of it. And then and then you gain like we were talking about, you gain more fluidity with the different ways of practicing. Well, thank you for joining me today. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Diana's work, you can visit her website at www.dianawinston, that's D-I-A-N-A-W-I-N-S-T-O-N.com. And her new book, The Little Book of Being, is now available anywhere that books are sold in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. Thank you for listening. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.